1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, better than before on iHeart Radio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us. And now, as always, please welcome the woman who can charm the husks right off of the corn. My producer, Lori Houston. Hi, Lori. Hi, Jane. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good. Well, speaking of food, Laurie, we have a great, great show today, and it's all about food and wine. In fact, our guest today is Dana Cowan, who is Food & Wine Magazine's renowned editor-in-chief. She is also their lead talent scout, searching out the best new ideas in food, drink, travel, entertaining, and style for the entire Food & Wine brand, including magazine, web, tablet, social media, and books I fear certain radio hosts who still manage to burn Whole Foods' already cooked chickens need not apply. Uh, Dana's (laughs) first cookbook, (laughs) Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, Learning to Cook with 65 Great Chefs and Over 100 Delicious Recipes, was published last year. She is on the Board of Directors of City Harvest, a New York City hunger relief organization, and Hot Bread Kitchen, an organization that helps train low-income men and women to join the culinary workforce. And if that isn't enough enough in 2012 dana was inducted into the james beard foundations who's who in food and beverage in america she's also a wife and mother of two so let's just say she is a very very busy woman and here i do a whole lot less and i can't even seem to make a three minute egg dana
2: (laughs) welcome to the show
1: Thank (laughs) thank you thank you so much for being with us
2: I'm very excited to be here, and I'm sure that there's a way I can help you with that three-minute egg. I think you might need to just have it spend a little more time in water, and you're going to be fine.
1: Uh, well, no, my new book is called "I Have Yet to Master My Mistakes in the Kitchen." <laughs> <It> was, uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, it's a true—it's really a pleasure to meet you. I'm a big fan of your work and your magazine. And uh, the book that I I really just did write, which will be out next month, called Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before, is all about using a multifaceted approach to achieving long-term health and happiness. And what I like about Food & Wine, the the brand, is that it's so much more than just talking about the next great meal. It's about uh, finding exciting places, new experiences, making readers aware of the latest trends. You know, It's all about having a complete and healthy lifestyle, which leads to an energetic not to mention stylish take on living well. And I just learned how to make super crispy potatoes, which was featured in the food and wine video. So that's all I need to be happy.
2: <laughs> uh.
1: I, I never I never could do that before, so now, now I have. That's one of the things. I, I, I can't boil the egg, but I certainly can make a soup, uh, the super crispy potatoes. Now, Dana, recently you were featured, uh, you were featured guest on TEDx Talks here in New York, and your seminar, which was completely sold out, was called Changing the Way We Eat. And your talk was about loving ugly food to eliminate wasting food. You know, in other words, imp- imperfect produce that doesn't make it to market contributes to the millions of tons of food wasted each year, the world over. So it shouldn't be about, you know, the perfect tomato or spear of asparagus, but about using food that is inherently ugly, like the potato that looks like Quasimodo or the hairy carrot or the disfigured eggplant. So uh, let's talk about your TEDx talks. How did you come up with that subject?
2: Um, this topic, which is food waste, is something that is um, important to all of us. And at Food & Wine, it is not a topic that we cover um, with frequency because, as you are describing what the magazine is about, we're about living a really great life. You know, we want to eat well, drink well, travel well, um, live in beautiful houses, and you know, we don't always face... um, the the bigger political uh, concerns around food. But we saw a trend in uh, the the food world, which was supermarkets in Europe had campaigns around um, these ugly and misshapen fruits and vegetables. In France, at the Intermarché, they had a campaign for the inglorious, fruits and vegetables, and they had the ridiculous potato and the failed lemon, and that really captured my imagination, and I really wanted to do a story um, around that topic, but it didn't really seem on point for us until I began talking to chefs, and um, it turns out, of course, chefs are very concerned with waste. And the more I talked to them, the more I realized it is something that food and wine could do and how important it was for us to do, and then for me to speak out and do a talk on the topic. So, René Redzepi, who is a chef in Copenhagen, um, he has – his best-known dish is a vintage carrot that is, as you you were talking about, hairy carrots. He took the hairiest, (laughs) ugliest, one that had been underground for an entire year and nursed it with goat butter – and um, made a sorrel sauce and cooked it with chamomile, and it was turned into something delicious. Um, And then Dan Barber, I went to a pop-up that he uh, is doing right now at his restaurant, Blue Hill, uh, in the West Village, and the pop-up is called Wasted. Um, Not meaning, oh my gosh, we've drunk too much, but oh my gosh, we're wasting so much, we need a new education. Um, So it's a waste education. Uh, so I found that with the chefs tackling the topic, it was a really interesting way for us to learn more and then be able to do more. And um, as a result of the TED Talk, I've launched um, a campaign called Hashtag, so it's, so it's Twitter and Instagram, Love Ugly Food. And we have seen some really adorable ugly food today. Um, there's a hashtag, Ugly Fruit and Veg, that... Um, posted an onion with a gremlin face inside. And you just you find that these ugly fruits and vegetables are quite adorable, actually. And you don't even want to eat them, they're so cute. But if we could all embrace ugly fruits and vegetables, um, we could indeed cut down waste in America. Right now, 20% of all fruits and vegetables go to waste. It's a staggering number. And we can all help change that, but in order to change it, we have to go into the supermarket and not only buy the as you were saying the asparagus, not only stick straight asparagus and stick straight carrots you know it has to be okay if the carrot has a curve. Is a curvy carrot really less delicious? I would have to argue no, it is as delicious as as a straight one so um, I think there's a a lot of education to be done, and we also need to branch out from um Accepting of fruits and vegetables, which probably isn't so hard, to ugly fish, you know, and um, different cuts of meat. And there is so much we can do with the food we have.
1: Yeah, I love it that the French who say, who cares that the carrot that goes into your soup is ugly. I mean, seriously, I mean, you don't. You don't say, "Gee, I want that beautiful carrot in in, in my soup," because, as you said to your point, it it tastes it tastes the same. Sometimes even better. Um, and, and I also um, like it in in. I was reading about wasted, um, and it said that um, the chefs who are bringing attention to food waste um, found that they're highlighting the ways chefs can take these ugly ingredients or the food some people have deemed inedible. And I'm thinking that's like anything that I make. So I think I should be part of that
2: program. <laughs> <laughs> you really uh, need a remedial course, I can tell. But I will from going to um this dinner last night I can share some of the highlights. It was really extraordinary to see um things that would have been discarded, literally put in the waste bin, turned into a delicious part of the meal. Um Dan Barber the the chef teamed up with Baldor, um, which provides vegetables and they will often, um, to restaurants, Baldor provides vegetables to restaurants, they'll have vegetable scraps that literally go and are tossed out. And Dan to- took those before they got to the garbage, of course, and made a really beautiful shaved salad with a phenomenal dressing. And, you know, you, they actually came to our table with an iPad and showed us how usually these vegetable scraps were thrown in a you know, a gigantic bin, mm-hmm. and instead of going in the bin, they went to our dinner, and I could not have told you the difference between that and something I would have been served you know on another menu at a restaurant equally delicious. So, and then we um, Acme um, Fish also collaborated with Dan, and there were two interesting things around fish. One. Uh, they took the heads of smoked white fish uh, and usually those are tossed in the garbage. Instead of tossing them, they gave them to Dan. He picked out the meat, the flesh, and made this beautiful smoked white fish tartare. Um, and it was so creative. It took labor and time to transform that almost discarded food into something delicious, but it was so worthwhile. And in the same way, there there was a fish where the, the fillets had been taken off and just the bone was left. But you realize that when a fish provider is cutting off the fillets, there is a fair amount of meat left on the bone. And so last night we were served just the bone with the meat, and there, it, the meat was really tender and absolutely delicious. So...
1: Um, Gosh, you know, Dana, yeah. there may be hope for me after all, because most of my food ends yeah, up not, well. not, most of my food ends up not eaten. So I should be I should be more creative, uh, in, indeed. So what a wonderful campaign, though, truly, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it- Um, So, Dana, let's talk a little bit about your book, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, Learning to Cook with 65 Great Chefs and Over 100 Delicious Recipes that was published last year. Now, I was laughing because your blurb says, for years, Dana Cowan, the longtime editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, kept a dark secret. From meat to vegetables, broiling to baking, breakfast to dinner, she ruined literally every kind of dish she attempted. And that could be my epitaph. (laughs) <laughs> In fact, Dana, not only can I not cook, but I think i pass these genes down to my children. As a matter of fact, quick story. My middle son called me recently from his apartment. He wasn't feeling well. Um, and he thought he was coming down from was something and I told him why don't you make some soup because well you know mom how am I supposed to do that I said well okay you take the can you open it pour it into the pot get out a spoon you know check check okay he said and then he called back 15 minutes later cuz mom you know it's not ready yet I said Philip did you turn on the stove and he said uh, you didn't tell me that so <laughs> <laughs> So how did you come to write this book
2: Well uh you know, I had a mother apparently like you, and a grandmother also. So I come from a long line of non-cooks, and um, you know we're proud non-cooks. We're totally fine with being non-cooks. I came to Food and Wine, and as soon, and 20 years ago, and ever since I landed here, I am the best-fed person in America. There's a test kitchen down the hall. I go to terrific restaurants um, and eat great meals. And so the call for me to cook was not um, you know, as loud as it might have been for some other people. So that seemed fine for me for a while. But then I realized after truly about 18 years here, which seems a good long time, that it would be a shame if I had access to all these chefs and I didn't actually improve my skill in the kitchen. Um, and I realized that one reason I hadn't learned to cook was I was too embarrassed to go to cooking school where I'd expose my ignorance to a group of 16 people. But in fact, um, if I took lessons with individual chefs, it would be less embarrassing. Of course, then I decided to publish a cookbook, and now millions of people know um, that, indeed, I didn't know how to cook, but I'm on the other side. I've learned a lot from the chef's who have coached me. So the book came about because I felt like I should learn to cook, but it also came about because I felt like if I am having these challenges, there are so many other people who do too, and they would also benefit from advice from star chefs. Something that I find, because I go to a lot of food demos where chefs are teaching the audience to cook, but chefs don't always know the really stupid mistakes we home cooks make. So cooking with them side by side, the number of times the chefs sort of banged their head in astonishment at the stupidity of what I've just done, um, sort of alarming. But it, but it also helped um, them understand where a home cook could go wrong because so many things are intuitive to them. Um, I was just in the kitchen the other day with Kristen Kish who um, – one uh, top chef on Bravo, and, you know, I, we had brined a fish, we would brined halibut, and I took it out of the brine, patted it dry, and she, Christian told me to salt the fish, so I, you know, salted it lightly, and then I turned it over and started salting the other side, and she's like... Did you taste the brine? Do you know how much salt there is in it? Do you know how salty the fish is already? but why would you salt one side and not the other? Like, it wouldn't have occurred to her to explain that to me. So anyway, I've learned on behalf of myself and on behalf of anyone else who has questions in the kitchen.
1: But see, you're already advanced. If you brine a fish, that's advanced. I open a can of salmon, so that's where my level is. So you should you have advanced very well. If you could if you could do that. So what are some of the mistakes that you made along the way? I mean, is that the sort of basics that we all make? Let's let, going back to boiling the egg. You just gave me a tip about leaving it in the water. Um, the, so I mean, is cooking fairly easy, or if you really do it right, or is it? Quite compl- it looks complicated, but I think there's certain basics that make it pretty easy that even I could probably learn if I set my mind to it, right?
2: Um, I'm completely convinced that you can learn to cook. Um, I'm also convinced that you will probably continue to make mistakes. Um, there are a couple of things that are very important. One is if you're going to cook, that should be what you're focused on at that moment. So for you, you're really thinking when you're cooking, I'm going to mess this up. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'd rather be doing something else. Why am I doing this? And that takes away from sort of being able to follow instructions, pay attention, and make sure you don't burn things or, you know, um, undercook them. So I think focus is actually quite important. Um, Also, being sure that you don't pay attention to your instincts if you don't have any. I mean, my instinct with the that fish example where I salted the other side, it seemed to me quite obvious that you have to salt both sides, but not, you shouldn't pay attention to your instincts if they're not good, because it can take you in the wrong direction. Um, My instincts
1: take me to the phone to order out, (laughs) to order in. That's
2: where they take me. Well, that actually sounds like a very good instinct um, for you. I think that's great. And I think that if if you actually decided that you wanted to cook, I mean, I think the first thing you'd have to ask yourself is, what would I like to eat that I've cooked? What do I like enough that I will make this three times so that by the time I make it the fourth time, it's going to be really good? And I wonder from what you're saying whether you just you're not you know what is that dish tell me what is the dish
1: what is the dish that i i want to make that i i can't make it's like everything it's relaxing though i mean i have cookbooks i do now of course i'm going to order your book immediately um now that i i know about i just heard about it recently and it's, it's 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 on order um but i i guess Kind of I mean I steam vegetables very well and I can make rice um, which is I, I know the the, the measurements um, it's something complicated I guess that but I, I find it relaxing even the small cooking that I do I find it actually quite relaxing so I want to expand my horizons um,
2: I just think and, in, in order to expand them you just have to find the dish that you care about like for example yeah. um, I love baked city arrabbiata. I am willing to make that three times. And, you know, make a mistake the first time, fix that one the second time, make a different mistake, make it the third time and make a different mistake. Because every time I make that, I'm very happy to have eaten it. And then by the time you've cooked it three times, you will know that dish and you will own it. And it'll make you feel better than making, um, you know, steamed vegetables and rice.
1: Yeah, which my husband doesn't really want to eat. I'm still trying to get him to eat my kale. And he said, no, there's no way. So I make him string beans. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Um, but you know, let's, let's back up a little bit before you became, um, the editor in chief of food and wine magazine, you were the executive editor of Mademoiselle and which is a woman's magazine. I was at, I was at town and country, so we were sort of neighbors, although at different companies, you were the managing editor of HG magazine and an associate editor of Vogue. So how did you go from that genre of magazine, um, to being the editor in chief of, of food and wine? Tell us about that journey that took you there.
2: I have been very lucky working at these amazing magazines that have really great readers. And so the way I look at it, I've actually been editing magazines for the same people for all this time. When I was at Vogue, where I was just a – I mean, I wasn't really an editor. I was um, sort of a coffee getter um, and a little bit more than that. But that person had a great life that was focused on – Fashion. And when I was there, I was um, working on the books coverage and the wine coverage and um, design. And then when I went to House and Garden, those people were the same type of people, except instead of being really obsessed with fashion, they were really obsessed with interiors. But they also wanted to live a really great life. So when I came to Food and Wine, um, my idea was to take the notion of the person who's first and foremost in love with food and then bring that to life through every single thing that they do, whether it's travel or their house or getting dressed or um, entertaining. And so, though it seems like I was, had these very disparate experiences, in fact, it was all someone who wanted to live a really great life, which sounds to me like you would exactly understand it because it's mm-hmm. the core of what it. You so, um, I came to Food and Wine not definitely not knowing how to cook, um, definitely knowing how to make reservations. So you and I are um, at some point were the exact same person, and uh, and then my knowledge of, of food has grown, and the world of food has grown so much in the last twenty years. So in the same way, I probably couldn't have gotten into um, the college I went to today. I probably couldn't have gotten this job if I applied today. But back then, there were fewer people obsessed with food, and um, the idea of food and lifestyle was quite new. So I got this great job and have gotten to grow uh, with the, the magazine, from the, as you said earlier, from the magazine to add the website, to add books, to add um, TV, and it's been really a great, great experience
1: yeah it's funny because you and I actually went to the same schools, but we uh, we have we have gone in very different directions <laughs> and and, and you are i mean your magazine is is really so renowned it 's everyone you mentioned food and wine, everybody and everything else you do they all were very very impressed that you are on the show today dana and i 've had some really wonderful guests we 've had some wonderful guests, but you are are um you're a star, so I must I must tell you that. Um, now, after you've mentioned you were 20 years at Food & Wine, how is the food scene, for lack of a better term, how has that changed over the years? How has that evolved from when you started?
2: The evolution has been gigantic, because when I got here 20 years ago, um, the Food Network had just started. Uh, so if you can think of a time, all of you listening, before... Um, There were star chefs before there was reality TV, before, um, you know, you could watch a cooking show every single minute of the day, before everyone, you know, woke up and was thinking about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, Maybe everybody doesn't do that, but certainly a lot more people do now than did before. Um, Our exposure to ingredients has changed. So dramatically, I mean, there was no Whole Foods, I'm pretty sure. Uh, But in any case, our interest in organics and in um, our view of health and food has changed so substantially during that time. When I came to Food and Wine, we had a low-fat column, and that was what healthy meant. Which I um, never—I'm not interested in diets per se, because I think that if you have a well-rounded diet and you eat moderately, you're always going to be healthier. That said, our interest in um, gluten-free and vegan and vegetarian in changing the, the way we eat and what's on our plate, that has been a huge change from um, 20 years ago. If you think of the tapas revolution, the idea that if we went out to a restaurant 20 years ago, you would maybe have an appetizer and your main course would inevitably have um, a protein, a starch, and a green, and then maybe you would have dessert. And today, most people, when they eat, don't really want that main dish. People are sw- switching towards you know they want a few different things to taste, and they want their palate to be continually excited. They don't want, um, you know, they don't want that big hunk of meat in the middle. If you think about the cooks today, they're so much more adventurous. Um, We have a column at the magazine called The Gastronaut. These are people who want to roast pigs in their backyard, which I know you're not going to do, but um, many people do like to do that, or they have learned to butcher. And they've taken food and DIY to entire new heights. So I could go on because the difference between today and 20 years ago is so tremendous.
1: I was actually planning on a luau tonight, so if you would like to come, sure. I will roast my first suckling pig right right before your eyes. Uh, also, you know it's interesting because when I first started writing about spas for Town and Country, we're talking twenty years ago as well. Um, the, the The concept was to eat a lettuce leaf. I think they gave you five hundred calories, and then that that was the that was the diet, quote unquote. And now it's eat as much as you want and just exercise more, which is a much healthier way of life, and, and also. So you mentioned organic, which years ago, when you had organic, it was had little wormholes or it had, you know, speaking of perfect food, it was not perfect, but it was lovely. It was very sweet and you knew it was organic for sure because... It, it was it wasn't perfect, but today organic seems just as perfect as as conventional. I mean, the oranges look a lot of times like they're big Day Glo balls, and the avocados are big green balloons. So I always find it interesting. I always wonder: is it really organic if it's so perfect? So you know, hard to hard to say, right? Um, I
2: think that uh, organics have come a really long way, and I think that that original image that. If it's organic, it has to be dinged in some fashion. Um, You know, it just isn't, it really isn't true because I think that uh, farmers have found ways to work with the land and work with whatever they're producing to make the crop much more consistent and um, less flawed, even if they're not using pesticides and other harmful sort of ways of. Uh,
1: manipulating their crop right so that um, now how about the the um, the meccas the new meccas and of course everyone at one point thought going to paris you know the greatest food destination but things have changed are you constantly discovering new cities new places that have the most amazing food?
2: Absolutely. I love going to new food meccas. In fact, I just came back from Tokyo. Most chefs, if you ask them, where would you like to go for food inspiration, you know, if you, someone gave you um, a blank checkbook and a ticket and said, go, you know, go wherever you want, um, many chefs would choose to Japan because of their the deep knowledge of these single subject food, like the person who's making ramen has, their family's made it for centuries, or the same thing with, um, you know, yakitori, or the same thing with tempura, and they, there's an appreciation of the deep, deep love of um, food, and and the purity, and the uh, living with the seasons, and the simplicity, and so I, I find that um, Tokyo is amazing, and um, People still, you know, Paris went, uh, or French food went through a bit of a decline in terms of interest. People are like, oh, French, I'm I'm not so interested. It's so old-fashioned. And I think that the French sometimes have a hard time moving forward themselves. But it's newly in vogue again, and I think Paris is never in or out of vogue because it's so fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Copenhagen is a in- very interesting place to eat right now because of Rene Redzepi, the chef behind Noma, which many consider the number one restaurant in the world. Uh, and he has acolytes who have interesting restaurants uh, around the city. And, you know, like New York is a fantastic place to eat right now. So is Los Angeles, which, you know, we've never seen a lot happening in LA. And now there's so much that is exciting in Los Angeles.
1: Now, you mentioned New York. Tell me about the new Chef's Club by Food & Wine restaurant in New York City.
2: Food & Wine um, collaborated with Chef's Club USA to create a restaurant. And we have one in Aspen, and we just opened one in New York City. It's in the Puck Building. And I had the pleasure of working on this project, uh, on the design with David Rockwell and on the content with um, Stefan de who is the, the, the president. And the idea is so great. It is a celebration of culinary uh, creativity. And what that means literally is that the, um, each year, Food & Wine has four past Best New Chefs who create dishes for chef's club that are served. And the chefs are from all over America. So you can sit in one dining room in New York City and have amazing food from four distinct chefs plus our home chef. And you might think, um, well, isn't that going to be weird? I mean, do I really want food from four separate people? But we have planned the menu with such care that we feel like instead of being disparate and Oddball—it's actually just incredibly exciting food that goes together because it's all innovative and delicious.
1: And it's near me, so I can go. That sounds—that sounds like a plan. I'm gonna—I'm writing this down <laughs> now. Is it open to the public so you can you can go? You can make a reservation, or is it a? Um,
2: nope, it's a—it's um, a club in that we encourage all chefs to be part of our club, but the. Um, it is open to the public, and um, it has a great little bar. There is seating right in front of the open kitchen so you can watch your food being prepared. There's a quieter space in the back where you can um, have large table, larger tables with friends. And then we have this really exciting space called the Chef's Studio where we have um, visiting chefs from all over the world come and cook for 16 people Um in what's essentially a private dining room with a, a stove. So the chef cooks for you and 15 other people, and it's really special.
1: And I'm very good at making reservations, as you probably could, as you probably became aware of somewhere during the show. Yes. So, Dana, we are going to take just a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Food, Wine, Women initiative and also about your Food and Wine Best New Chefs um, Award. That you're going to be announcing, I guess, I think at the very at the end of this month. So everyone, stay with us. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking once again with Dana Cowan, who's the editor in chief of Food and Wine magazine.
0: We'll be right back. This portion of the Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts. Express Scripts oversees 1.4 billion pharmacy claims each year on behalf of employers health plans, unions, and government health programs, Express Scripts works to make the use of prescription drugs safer and more affordable for the 100 million Americans they serve. Understanding that better decisions lead to healthier outcomes, Express Scripts helps patients make the best drug choices and health choices possible. Their disease-specific pharmacists are here to help you better understand your prescribed therapy, lower your overall health care costs, and, ultimately, stay on the path to better health. For more information, visit ExpressScripts.com. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins' Michael Show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune in to Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins-Michael, and better than before.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We are on the air live. You are listening to the Jane Wilkins-Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm here with Lori as always. And it is my great pleasure today to be speaking with Dana Cowan, who is the esteemed editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine. Dana, welcome back. Um, now, Dana is, by the way, everyone is teaching me that I can um, cook after all. Right, Dana? I know you it's can. A, I know there's you hope.
2: Can. There is totally hope. If there's hope for me, there's hope for you. <laughs>
1: Now, let's talk a bit about the Food, Wine, Women initiative. Uh, In your January, I believe, letter to the editor, you wrote, At Food & Wine, we celebrate remarkable women, chefs, artisans, authors, bakers, butchers, and wine experts. We do it often and with enthusiasm because of their extraordinary talent. Now, we're making an even more significant commitment to help stellar women get the recognition they deserve. And he asked the readers to nominate the women who inspire them in hopes that, as you said, together we can help women make bigger strides in the world we all love. So I guess my question is, did, did anyone vote for me besides myself? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Your son, except he revoked the vote when he, he forgot <laughs> to turn on the, the
1: light. When I, when I told him to turn on the stove. Uh, well, actually, I, I vote for contestants on Dancing with the Stars, so, so you can't always trust my instincts. Um, so tell us about the campaign.
2: So um, you've encapsulated so well. At Food & Wine, we've always supported women chefs, pastry chefs, artisans, and, and yet there was often a lot of pushback that we didn't support them enough. Uh, primarily because Food & Wine has an award called Best New Chefs, um, and we announce that every year, and we give the award to people at 10 restaurants. Sometimes there's a duo cooking, so sometimes maybe it's 11 people. ten. So it's 10 or 11 people, and usually out of that 10, there's only one who is a woman. Now, I have always believed quite firmly that that proportion reflected The number of the percentage of women in the world of food who were trying to make uh, sort of cutting edge, high end restaurant food, because that's what the award is for. Um, But over time, I realized that maybe we can—that may be true—but maybe we can help advance the cause of women, make sure that there are more women who are cooking at a high level in restaurants if we help promote them. And so we've undertaken this um, hashtag FoodWineWomen campaign, which has been one of the most exciting things that we've done. Because so many fantastic women have um, been interviewed, been included on our website, have shared stories about mentorship, have shared stories about how they started, have um, you know really put a spotlight on great talented women. And I'm so happy for that, and I feel like there actually is, at this moment, a big sea change, not because of uh, what Food & Wine is doing, but because it's about time that women um, are now in bigger positions in the food world in restaurants. So now when you go to a restaurant and you ask who the chef de cuisine is, often the answer is, oh my gosh, it's this amazing woman. And so we want to talk to those women, we want to highlight their accomplishments, we want to share it all over so that if you're a woman and you're thinking about, do I want to be in this business, you have a lot of role models, a lot of people who show you that this can be your path and you can succeed. And it is really exciting to be a woman in the restaurant world.
1: And I have something to strive for. I have a goal. Now I know. I just go, I'm not, no longer want to be in beauty and health and fitness. Now I want to be in something that I always think I could do. And I never really tried. So now you have given me inspiration. Maybe not to win that award, but just you know to get this little, little, but small steps, little by little. <laughs> Uh, Dana, you'll also be announcing the Food & Wine 2015 Best New Chefs at the very end uh, end of March. And I believe it's the 27th Annual Food & Wine Best Chefs Award. You announced the most innovative up-and-coming chefs in America right now, men and women. Um, and they were very stellar chefs. Um, they were Thomas Keller, David Chang, uh, Danielle Ballou, among many, many others. And they'll be featured in the July issue of Food & Wine. Um, you know, I have a feeling I didn't actually make that. That list <laughs> I, have that funny, I have that funny feeling I didn't make that list either so tell us about that um, uh, the announcement how exciting is that
2: well we think it's super exciting because at Food & Wine we're all about celebrating great talent so uh, my team goes all over the country looking for the most creative chefs who've been running a kitchen for five years or fewer And when we find one, when someone is, you know, let's say across the country, and I get that call, and they say, "I found a best new chef," Um, it is some of the most fun conversations that we have because then you hear why the food is so interesting, why the person is so interesting, how the editor thinks that the chef will change the world, and so we argue vociferously over, you know, who are the most worthy best new chefs for the year, and. It takes us some time, but then we come to a decision, and I get to call the chef, and I have to tell them to not tell anyone else, and those are the best phone calls that I make in the entire year, Um, you know, where someone says, I have been dreaming of getting this award since I was eight years old, and, you know, I cut out the logo of the magazine, and I pinned it above my bed, and I said, one day, I'm going to be on that cover. Um, So, the award is is meaningful in part because of the track record that we have at Food & Wine. You mentioned um, Thomas Keller and Danielle Bouloud. Those are people who won this award um, decades ago, and they're still part of our family. And from the time that they won the award, when they weren't terribly well-known, they've become extremely well-known um, and you know really have indeed shaped food in America today. So we're very excited to be announcing our new class, the 2015, um, on March 31st, and um, there's always some surprises in the group, and we have some surprises this year, so watch out for it. And um, and then we track the chefs. You know, once we name them best new chefs, we try to help them with their career. We give advice. We um, showcase the recipes. We showcase the restaurants because we want them to succeed. We believe in them. and We believe in their ability to um, change the world.
1: See, I put that on my dream board for since I was eight. But I, I'm going to wait by the phone. Maybe I'll be that'll be the excitement. I'll be getting the call. Now, you, I think now the I'm very not going to. I'm going not is take any other calls. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep my phone open. No other calls until I get that that call. So now, you know, it's interesting. I had um, uh, Michael Simon on, who, as you know, is an Iron Chef and, and host of The Chew. And I asked him what his favorite food was, and it surprised me. I thought it was something, you know, incredibly esoteric. And he said, well, pork. And I said, hmm, so do you have a, do you have a favorite food that you, your, your go-to food or your favorite meal?
2: Well, um, those are two separate things. Because my, my favorite foods are not necessarily the healthiest foods in the world. My favorite food, hands down, is fried chicken. Um, I love fried chicken. I could. I actually went to a party at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival um, just know, a few weeks ago, and they had an entire fried chicken event where there were, you know, 20 stations of fried chicken, and I had fried chicken from every single one of them, and I was happy when I left. Um, I mean, I was happy, not that I left, but that I had <laughs> all that fried chicken. So, um, but, you know, that's not something I, I eat every day, nor do I eat 20 of them every day. Uh, but whenever I get it, I'm very delighted.
1: And we're not talking about the Popeye's fried chicken here. This is this is the great fried chicken. Now, that's making me hungry. I think fried chicken is still... I have not gone the fried chicken route, but now that I know that um, you do, I might, I might try to make it. Do you ever make fried chicken yourself or no? Is that too... Uh, um,
2: well, you know, I hadn't made ever made fried chicken, but because it was my favorite food, is my favorite food, I decided for the book that I had to learn to make it. And I had stayed away from it because I didn't like the idea of being near boiling oil. Since I make so many mistakes, I was thinking the potential with me and boiling oil was really problematic. Um, So I decided to take it on. And I did a shallow fry with the chicken. Um, and I was so happy because my first two pieces were fantastic, but then my third piece, the oil was bubbling away, and I put the um, chicken leg in, and I was so happy because the oil was bubbling, but then when I took it out because it was getting a little over brown, I discovered that, in fact, you need to take, you don't really want the oil to be bubbling because it was practically burnt on the outside and raw on the inside, so um, I definitely have made a mistake with my favorite food, and I definitely think that, you know, in the future, I'm going to be going out for that favorite food.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I reminds me, years ago, I decided that I would make, this was my first meal I ever cooked when, when I got married, and I thought I would make steak. And I must have slammed the oven so hard that the steak, I think, fell behind a pipe, and I never found uh-huh. it. So my I said, I what happened to the other steak? I said, Do you know something, I don't know. So, uh, but I, I will attempt chicken. He likes that. He likes he, he does like fried chicken. I'm actually pro pro, pro gluten free, and he's he's pro pizza. So he he, he likes fried chicken. Um, does your husband share your love of food?
2: Um, my husband has um, the perfect attributes for um, for me. He will eat anything, and he'll eat a lot of it, and um, and he's not picky, so if I ruin something, he doesn't seem to notice, and if we go out to restaurants and I only want to eat half of the dish because um, that's my sort of rule of thumb, mm-hmm. I'll eat only half of something so that I don't turn into a balloon, um, he's delighted to eat half of my meal in addition to his, so I think he's perfect. But he's not a cook. So. He cooked for me on our our first date. He made a steak. It tasted, well, actually, I don't think I really tasted it. It chewed like shoe leather, and that was the end of that meal. And he really hasn't cooked again, except um, he does make a very good soup.
1: At least you had the steak. My husband never even had the steak. <laughs> we, have yet to, we have yet to find it. Um, well, my husband, he doesn't cook very often, but when I had my, my third child, my, my daughter, he decided to make sauce Elise, which is her name, when I came home from the hospital. And it was very good. It was his tomato sauce. But I looked and I, I saw he had, it splattered all over the ceiling, all over the walls. So... Um, that was his idea of, of cooking, and as I said, it was delicious. But the cleanup was I don't, <laughs> the cleanup was monstrous. So. Uh, now, Dana, do you have any? T- We're all so overwhelmed as as women and in, in every aspect of of our lives. Do you have any? quick tips, personal tips that you follow that make your life easier because you have so much to do. And as I mentioned, you have two children. You have a very busy personal life as well as as your career. Are there any tips that we can share, you can share with us to make our lives maybe just a little bit easier, a little bit better than before?
2: Uh, My personal theory is to um, have a big picture view in your mind of what needs to get done and then do one thing at a time exactly what it needs to be done. So for example, in plotting out uh, the book, which is a two-year process, instead of thinking, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming and I have so much to do, I literally broke it down into pieces and only did what I needed to do at that time and never looked ahead. And it's sort of strange to say not to look ahead, but I look ahead in that I will plan ahead But when I'm trying to get something done, I only try to do what I need to do at that moment. And for me, that makes life less overwhelming. So if I have you know, um, 10 things to do in a day, I know what I need to do first and what I can leave to last, and I don't have the expectation that I will get it all done in three hours if I know that I have 10. That's my little trick.
1: Right, and you're super organized too. I'm sure that that that, that helps. <laughs> that that does help. Well, Dana, thank you so much for being with us. It was a absolute pleasure to speak with you, to meet you. Uh, how do we follow your eating and drinking adventures?
2: Um, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at fw scout. And I love hearing about other people's. Um, Cooking mistakes. I love seeing other people's ugly food. I like knowing about um, women that people admire. So, feel free to tweet at me or Instagram at me, and you know, share those thoughts because I love hearing from people.
1: Well, you'll get lots of tweets from me about that subject. <laughs> Believe me, be, be prepared—you'll be inundated with my with my tweets. So, thank you again for being with us. It was, so it was a pleasure. And thank you, Lori, as always. And thank you all for listening. This is Jane Wilkins. Michael, I will see you next week. Until then, be wise, be well, be better than before.
0: Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.